Uh, we're in Acts 24 to 26 this morning. I haven't got a church bar, but it's 1000 and 1030. And I'm just going to give you some sort of background to 24 and 25 before we hear chapter 26 read to us. But I want to begin by uh, quoting from the Apostle Paul, the same guy that we're going to meet in this reading. Uh, he said this famous verse in Romans 1, it's on the screen. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let me ask you, what, what does it mean to not be ashamed? What does it look like not to be ashamed? You're proud of it? Confident in it? To not be ashamed, what does it look like? You don't hide it. You're confident in it. You're proud of it. You're humbled by it. Bold, yeah. It's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because uh, this is the man who was tormented, beaten, mocked, flogged, imprisoned, and then killed for his faith. This is the man who appeared before kings and rulers and governors and the police and teachers, and he was questioned about his faith, but he can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why can he do that? How can he say, I'm not ashamed of this message of Jesus Christ? The answer is in the second half of the verse, because he's confident that it's God's power to save people. The word, word power is dynamite. Dynamite. He is confident that the message of Christ crucified is dynamite because it brings change to people. He's experienced the change. He himself has had his life changed by meeting Jesus. He's seen the power of the gospel transform hundreds and thousands of other people. So no matter, no matter who he is with, no matter where he is, no matter who he's talking to, he's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't hide it. He just boldly and humbly talks about his Savior. So let me ask you, what makes us ashamed of the gospel? I think sometimes the, the message, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds too simple. You know, one man in history who is God who lived a sinless life, who walked to an old wooden cross and was sacrificed for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead. It sounds too simple, doesn't it? And so when you're talking or dialoguing with these super intelligent people, these philosophers or these professors, you're thinking, this is too simple. And so you're tempted to do theological gymnastics to make it more complicated than it really is. Uh, maybe you're ashamed because Jesus said some things which in our 21st century, in the culture that we live in, let's be honest, they are politically incorrect and they're unpalatable. And so you're tempted to ignore that bit or pretend Jesus didn't say it. I reckon the real reason that I'm t 
tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Because I'm a people pleaser. I like to be liked. I like it when people like me. And I know that if I'm bold about talking about Jesus, not everybody's going to like me. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was more concerned about honoring God than people liking him. Now, when I think about people who are not ashamed of the gospel, now you've got those sort of celebrities, haven't you? Sort of, remember Dami in when she won X Factor? Did anyone hear her? On live TV, she's just acknowledging she, she worships a saviour called Jesus Christ and gives him the glory. That's, that's bold. Jared Haynes, Haynes, Hines, whatever you pronounce it, he, he, he's bold in saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Our premier, Mike Baird, he's not ashamed of being a believer in Christ. And no matter what you think of this person, but I mean, Fred Nile, you know, he's not ashamed of the gospel, is he? Or, or people in this church. I think lovely Kathy Mark Graff, who led us in worship this morning, like, she just keeps bringing people to church. People she's met, a hairdresser or a real estate agent or someone in the coffee shop. She, she's not ashamed about talking about Jesus. Ed Yorston. Every time I talk to him, he shared the gospel with somebody. And the Apostle Paul was not ashamed about Jesus. In our readings this morning, he is before two governors and a king. In chapter 24, just, just briefly look at chapter 24 with me. He's before a guy called Felix. He's a governor. Uh, when you think about Felix... I've tried to keep it really simple. Felix, I think, is a, a people pleaser with power. That's a bad combination. People with power who are people pleasers is a bad combination. 24 verse 5, he is, Paul is presented and the, the charges are, verse 5, we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews. He, he's He's a troublemaker. He starts riots, they say. Verse 5 again, he's the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarene. He's a wacko religious person. Uh, verse 6, he even tried to desecrate the temple. There the charges. He's a ringleader, he's a troublemaker, and he's anti-Jewish law and traditions. What does Felix do? What, what do weak leaders do? They listen to the crowd rather than to the facts. So come right down to verse 27, 24 verse 27. After two years had passed, Felix received a successor, Portius Festus, and, became, and because he wished to do a favor for the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison. So good old Governor Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years just because he's a people pleaser. It's a long time to contemplate your faith, isn't it? Two years. Well, when you think about being in prison, please do not think you know, a gym, you could do an evening class, have a TV in your cell so you can watch, watch the latest Netflix. When Paul is in prison for two years, there is no TV, there's no gym, there's no evening class. 
There's no bed. There's no toilet. It's a dirty, smelly cell, rat-infested, smells of urine and feces, and with two chains, and he's just chained to the wall for two years. Now, I have to say, if that was me for two years, I'd begin to doubt and question my faith, perhaps. But not Paul. He's not ashamed. He keeps boldly defending his faith. Got a new leader in chapter 25. His name is Festus. He is what I call the, the problem solver. He's a kind of leader who rushes in and wants to sort out all the mess, all the unfinished business, like the, the Kevin Rudd, you know, let's say sorry within the first 10 days of government. So Festus wants to solve all the problems, but he is weak. He's a problem solver, but he likes to pass the buck to other people. So his solution is to send Paul to Rome. Then look down to 25 verse 13. After some days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived. The king and the queen arrived. And they paid a courtesy call to Governor Festus. Since they stayed there many days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, "There's, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked for a judgment against him. I answered them, it's not the Romans' custom to give up any man before the accused confronts the accusers face to face and has an opportunity to give a defense concerning the charges. So Paul's got an audience with the king and the queen. They're not your nice royal family though, are they? Do you know who King Agrippa is? His name is King Herod Agrippa the second. Does that name Herod ring any bells? His great grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one who massacred all the infant boys to try and kill the baby Jesus. His grandfather was Herod Antipas. He's the king who beheaded John the Baptist. Got good genes, hasn't he, this king? And when you read King Agrippa and Bernice, you think, oh, it's his wife. Oh, it is his wife. But she's also his sister. It's an incestuous marriage. So you've got a powerful, perverted, violent man. So imagine you're Paul and you're dragged in before the king. There's pomp and there's ceremony and there's red carpets and there's purple robe and there's dignitaries and there you are in your rags. You're probably naked and you're bleeding and you're bruised. What would you say? Let's listen, shall we? So 25 verse 23, and Melinda's going to read it to us. Okay, so that's page 1031 of your Bible, Acts 25, 23. I'm going to read through to 2632. It's a fairly long reading, so I'll do my best. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. 
Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all men present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish community has appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. Now I realised that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him, therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner and not to indicate the charges against him. Agrippa said to Paul, it is permitted for you to speak for yourself. Sorry, it is permitted for you to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defence. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I am going to make a defence before you about everything I am accused of by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to the foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. I was travelling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those travelling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and of what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have obtained help that comes from God and I stand to testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. 
that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was making his defence this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It is to him I am actually speaking boldly. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. So the king, the governor, Bernice and those sitting with them got up and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man would have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thanks, Amanda. Great reading. Um, I've got four ways that you and I should not be ashamed of the gospel. Here's the first one. is our character. The way that we're not ashamed is, is really important, you know. Ever met those Christians who, they're saying the right thing, but their manner and their tone is so rude and so arrogant and so demeaning, they kind of undermine everything they're saying. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Your speech should always be gracious. Season with salt, so you may know how you should answer everybody. That's what I love about Paul. He is before governors and rulers and kings. Yes, he is bold. But he's also gracious. Yes, he's courageous, but he's also courteous. You see that in 26, verse 2 and 3? He stretched out his hands and began his defense humbly. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I'm going to make a defense before you about everything I am accused of by the Jews, especially since you're an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, please, listen to me patiently. Can you imagine the tone? He's not angry. He's not shouting. He's not raising his fists. He's so confident in the power of the gospel, that transforms his demeanor. Same at the end of chapter 26. Did you spot that? He's talking to Festus. He's so polite. Verse 25. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Same with when he's before Felix back in 24, verse 10. He's polite. I, I think lots of us could learn from that. He, I think evangelical Christians, we're so confident that we know everything and we've got it all right that sometimes our manner or our demeanor can be so off-putting for people hearing the gospel. Now, we're, we're preaching a message of compassion and a message of love. But the way that we say it, it lacks any compassion, it lacks any love. 
You're talking to people of other faiths. You don't bother listening to what they believe in order to engage them. You just download the gospel to them. You're talking to people in authority over you. They have been put in authority over you. We're called to respect them. Yes, you preach the gospel, but you do that with respect and grace, and you're courteous. You're talking to older people as a young 20 or 30-year-old. And the manner you talk to them needs to reflect the fact that you're elders. And I say that because I think lots of damage has been done by well-meaning Christians who are not ashamed of the gospel, but just the way they say it. It's so derogatory. So our character is important. Our commission is important. In chapter 26, you get the third account of Paul's testimony. Why does Luke bother to tell you the, the conversion story of Paul three different times? Uh, the one in chapter 26 is slightly different because you get more extension on his commissioning to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Yeah, he recounts the fact that he once persecuted the church, but now he's a preacher. Verse 10, he once burned Christians, hunted them down like a lion, dragged them, put them to death, but now he's met Jesus. But look at verse 16. Lord Jesus said, get up, stand on your feet, but I've appeared to you for this purpose. Here's a commissioning. I want to appoint you as my servant and a witness to what you have seen. That's the risen Lord Jesus and what I, will, what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share of those who are sanctified. And so Paul wasn't disobedient, verse 19, he went and preached. Oh, but that's Paul. You know, he, he had a personal encounter with Jesus. He was personally commissioned to take the gospel to people. Let me ask you this morning, if, you, if you're a Christian here this morning, have you had that personal encounter with Jesus? Have you met Jesus? You, you might not have seen the, the blinding light of the voice from heaven, but have you met Jesus? And if you have... I'm standing here to say that you two have been commissioned. What's your commission? Remember, go and make disciples of all nations. As you go, make disciples of all nations. That's not just for the select few. It's for every man or woman who knows and loves Jesus. We're here on earth with a purpose. We've been set apart by God. Not just to know God personally, but to actually be the hands and feet of our Savior in this world, to be his mouthpiece in this world. Whether you're in, the, in your law office or whether you're at home with your kids, whether you're in the school as a teacher, whether you're here in the pulpit, as you live, why are we here? To take the news of forgiveness. See that verse 18? Forgiveness of sins and sanctification to a world in darkness. I, I don't know what we'll face as we keep on preaching the gospel unashamedly. But as I said last week, I said again this week, I'm convinced that in this country, 
it will become more and more and more difficult to live as a Christian because the opposition will face. But please remember your character. Be humble about it. Remember your commission. Just be hands and feet for Jesus. What about the content? What did Paul preach? What is, what's the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of? You come back to chapter 24. When he's talking to Felix. Verse 24. So 24, 24. After some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as Paul spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now, but when I find time, I'll call for you. Do you ever wonder why Paul talks about righteousness, self-control, and judgment? I'll tell you why. When you understand that Drusilla is Felix's third wife. And when you understand that she became his wife through adultery, and when you understand that Felix is a godless adulterer as well, I think Paul chooses to talk about the righteousness of God and self-control and future judgment very deliberately because it ruffles a few feathers, doesn't it? And my point is this, that Paul exegetes the people he's talking to as much as he exegetes the Bible. He looks at the person before him and thinks, what's a, what's a good contact point to get to Jesus here? He stands before a man who has committed adultery, and he thinks... If I talk about self-control and future judgments, that might just ruffle his feathers, and it does. Now, I've been to do some work in some prisons, and what's a good contact point there? Just talk about sin. You don't have to work too hard in the prison to get people to say, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need, I need forgiveness. What's, what's a good contact point as you talk to the people of Kirribilli in their waterfront apartments? Please don't talk about how wonderful heaven's going to be. Because for them, this is heaven. But if you start to talk about whether they really are satisfied with all the stuff that they've got, you just get to talk about Jesus. As you, you, you talk to the person who is hurt or wounded or lonely or hopeless, if you start to talk about the love of a father who will never let them go, that's a good contact point, isn't it? So again, I, I, I think that our gospel is so one-dimensional. We often think, if I can just preach at people, talk about the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and just download my gospel track to people and we forget we're talking to real people. But there's one thing that Paul always talked about in every speech in Acts. And here's the shock. It's not the cross of Christ. He doesn't just talk about the death of Jesus. He talks about the 
the resurrection. Take a look with me. Chapter 24, verse 15. Before Felix, I have a hope in God which these men themselves also accept. There's going to be a resurrection, both of the, of the unrighteous and the righteous. Chapter 24, verse 21. Today I'm being judged before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. 25 verse 19, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man, Paul claimed to be alive. 26 verse 8, love this question. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, in terms of his content, he, he wants to talk about not just a crucified Savior, but, but a risen Savior. And I wonder why that's, well, I wonder whether that's why we're slightly ashamed of the gospel, because we don't talk about the resurrection enough. Let me ask you, what's at stake if there is no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, then Jesus is a liar. If there's no resurrection, then your faith is futile. If there's no resurrection, then believers are to be pitied more than most. If there's no resurrection, then your gospel work is in vain. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead, so you can't talk to him, so prayer is useless. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead, and so he can't judge anybody, so there's no judgment to come. But more than that, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. There's no hope of new bodies and a new life and an eternal life. If there's no resurrection, I'm, I'm wasting my time doing this job and preaching every week. I'll go back to maths teaching. But here's the problem. I do believe in the resurrection. I do believe that God can raise people from the dead. Why? Because Jesus has been raised. And I know that. And because Jesus has been raised, and I will be raised. And because Jesus has been raised, I'll have a new body and so will you. Transform bodies, bodies that work, minds that work. And because Jesus was raised and I have a hope of forgiveness and restoration and redemption and joy. So let me ask you, you know, when you talk about your faith, do you talk about the resurrection of Jesus? Because often we talk about just the cross and forgiveness and the past event. But when you're talking to people about the future, everyone knows they're going to die, don't they? Everyone's body is failing, isn't it? And that's why the resurrection is so beautiful. Because you talk about hope and new bodies and new life. So, so Paul had that connection point and he talked about the resurrection. That's what I talked about last night for half an hour with deeply, deeply grieving parents. Here's my last one this morning. Confidence. Look at the end of chapter 26. Before the king, imagine saying this before Queen Elizabeth, the longest reigning UK monarch. I had to get in this morning. Verse 27. Paul is not ashamed. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Are you trying to convert me, he says? 
And Paul says, that's exactly what I'm doing. I wish before God, whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am. That is a believer in Christ who's forgiven, restored, and redeemed. He's got this confidence that he will take every opportunity to try and win people for Jesus. He's not overawed by position or power or celebrity status. One of my friends in the UK works at Eton College. and He's been there for years and, and he was the housemaster and the chaplain for Prince William and then Prince Harry. He wasn't overawed by that. He just talked to them about Jesus like he did every, every other student in that school. See, if we go through life seeing people through that lens of needing to know Jesus and have the hope of eternal life, then you just keep on talking, don't you? And you're not ashamed, and you're prayerful. You take those opportunities, and you leave the rest to God. I've got a guy at Evening Church. His name is Tyson. He became a believer two and a half years ago. And that's because one of his work colleagues, Paul Hewson, was not ashamed. Gave him the Bible, invited him to church, did Christianity Explored, became a believer, living with his girlfriend. He moved out <laughs> because he said, I can't do this. She became a believer. They've got married. They're in this church, and they're now leading a hive group. How does that happen? Because somebody is bold enough and not ashamed of Jesus and just talks about Jesus with people. It's my challenge this week. Don't be ashamed. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for the, for the salvation of all. Kings, queens, governors, rulers, teachers, everybody. Can I pray? Uh, Father God, we pause now and we think of people we know and love that we long to share the gospel with. Father, forgive us for times when we've been arrogant, rude, lacked that compassion. Help us to be gracious like Paul was, yet bold. And forgive us for times we've just downloaded a gospel tract without really thinking about the people that we're talking to. Help us, Lord, please, just to find that point of connection and to point them to Jesus. And thank you, Father, this is your work. Thank you that you are in the business of saving souls and that you use us. Keep us prayerful, keep us humble. Help us never to be ashamed of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.